but it was probably written back uh, late in the year of 64 A.D. This was a few months after the burning of Rome, after Nero had had Rome burned to the ground, and then Nero used Christians as a scapegoat for the fire, the destruction of people's property, the destruction of their lives. There was great bitterness and anger over it, and the Christian, there was an anti-Semitic attitude at that time, which became an anti-Christian because these Christians had come from the Jewish faith. Uh, so there came an increasingly intense and widening persecution of Christians, which lasted, frankly, about 200 years. So Peter writes this epistle as the fire is beginning to be turned up on the Christians. I would say to you that in our nation, the fire is beginning to be turned up, and we need to be ready for that. And it's the fire being turned up by an unbelieving world, and those who, though they don't know it, they are agents of Satan who are set against the church of Jesus Christ. Well, in every chapter of the book of 1 Peter, there is some reference made to unjust suffering. The church was being persecuted. And it's difficult for us in America to relate to the severity of the suffering of Peter's day with the early church. Things like men and women who were covered with pitch and lit on fire uh, just because of their faith. People who were put on racks or killed in whatever manner. We can't imagine that because we haven't yet seen that in America. But as our culture becomes increasingly humanistic and atheistic, the persecution of the church in our day will surely become more and more aggressive. From my generation to our children's generation, and I suspect worse, to our grandchildren's generation. As our nation becomes more and more intolerant of the Christian faith, becoming a greater and greater threat. Well, if we live strongly for Christ, boldly testifying in His name, confronting a sinful culture, and in righteousness, being an offense to a godless and sinful society, we may find ourselves in great distress and persecution. I think our response should be, so be it. Did Christ die for us? Did He suffer for us? Did He give us eternal life? Yes. And if that's what He has designed for us in America, in whatever part of our life, then so be it. We must be ready for it. And in order to be ready, we must take to heart this passage that we're going to look at tonight in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, and read along with me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We only suffer 
for righteousness sake when we are visibly righteous. Living godly in an unrighteous culture will create hostility. If we hide our faith and our devotion to Christ, then it's unlikely that we will suffer. And may it never be that we are that weak, that fearful, that ashamed, or that cowardly of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question I want to pose to you tonight, one question with four responses, how do we as Christians prepare for suffering and for persecution? And there's going to be four. Number one is to expect it. Number one, rejoice in it. Number three, examine yourself. And number four, entrust yourself to God. So number one, expect suffering. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter has consistently said all throughout this epistle that persecution is inevitable. And then John, in John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 to 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then the very familiar verse in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering is the price we pay for discipleship. And there's a variety of sufferings that are listed throughout the New Testament. It's not just being burned at a stake or hung or that kind of thing. Just a, a list of a few that are mentioned throughout the New Testament. There are revilings, slanders, evil that will be spoken of you, false accusations, scourgings for Christ, rejection by men, hatred by the world, hatred even by your own relatives, martyrdom, temptations, shame cast upon us, tribulations and troubles of all kinds, imprisonment, stonings, beatings, being made a spectacle to men, being defamed and despised, enduring troubles, afflictions, distress, tumults, labors, fastings, and evil reports, just to name a few. That's what's listed throughout the New Testament. So here Peter starts verse 12 with the word beloved. It's a word of compassion. It's a word of fervent love. It's a reminder that they are loved by Peter, but much more than that, they are loved by the God who made them and called them. It's a reminder to ease your soul and mine when trials come that we are beloved. That under persecution, you, you might question the love of God, and our enemy would tempt you as Job's wife to curse God and die if it gets difficult. So Peter gives us this reminder, you're loved by your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're loved by God, your Heavenly Father. So don't be surprised when persecution comes. Christianity never promises immunity from suffering, but it promises suffering. So we must be ready for that. 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. The term fiery trial, it means a burning as in a furnace. It's like a smelting furnace uh, for purifying metal. God will at times put us in the furnace. In that verse that Blake preached on this morning from Psalm 66, verse 10, for you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. God allows you and I to be afflicted in His sovereignty. He allows us to be persecuted and rejected as a purifying process. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> our trials prove the genuineness of our faith. It comes upon you to test you. It reveals who is genuine and who is a phony. It's like the seed that fell on stony ground, went into the shallow soil, and quickly a plant shoots up but the roots can't go deep. And the sun comes out and burns the plant to a crisp and it never bears fruit. That's like a person who hears the gospel. He has an, op, uh, an emotional response, gives some outward appearance of belief, but because the soil of his heart has never been plowed, when tribulation comes, they're gone. The per- Listen to this statement. The persecuted church is the pure church. The persecuted church is the pure church. So it comes for your testing. God working in you to prove for your testing, to purge you, to cleanse you, to purify you. And the phrase, as though something strange were happening to you, it really means to happen by chance. None of this is by chance. No, God allows it. God designs it for your testing and for your good, to conform you and I to the image of Christ, to be used in a dark world, to be light, to glorify Him, and to bring glory to His name. Persecution and suffering are not accidental. They are part of God's plan. They should be common to all Christians, and they are common to all faithful Christians. Expect it. And when it comes, it'll take away pride. It'll take away any illusion of self-control in your life. It will strip you, and it will make you totally dependent upon God. So number one, expect it. Number two, rejoice in your suffering. Look at verses 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a right response in the face of suffering. Back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted 
the prophets who are before you. So you're in good company if you're being persecuted for the name of Christ. And then the question is, what is our motivation for rejoicing? That seems counterintuitive that we should rejoice while suffering. Well, I think this passage gives us two things. We can rejoice because of what's ahead in the future, but we can also rejoice in the present. Rejoice so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Jesus suffered because he was righteous and because he spoke the truth. We don't share in his redemptive sufferings. What he did on the cross, he did. We don't share in that. We are saved because of him and only because of him and only because of what he did for us on the cross. That part of his sufferings we do not share in. So all that he endured for our sake, his atoning suffering, we don't take part in. But we do share in his suffering for the sake of righteousness, for saying what is right and living what is right and preaching the right message. So when we are persecuted, we share in the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ's name. Count it a privilege if we suffer because of him. In suffering as he suffered, his earthly suffering at the hands of persecuted sinners, those who are hostile and rejecting and mocking and unkind to you, it's a privilege to suffer for his name. I always enjoy reading this passage, although it's hard for me to understand how they did it. But Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And here's what they did. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. May God give us grace to do that in whatever way that persecution comes. Paul in Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Later in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I share on behalf of His body in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He was eager to take the blows for Christ who took the blows for Him. May we be also. Sinners will hate us because they hated Him. And we take persecution that they mean really for Christ. Back in verse 13, it says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There's going to be a future glory that will be revealed. And that's one reason we should rejoice when we suffer now. It's going to be at the second coming of Christ. Luke says in chapter 17, verse 30, he calls it the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is now glorified and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he has done that since he ascended from this earth. But his glory has not yet been revealed on this earth. But verse 13 says, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. To rejoice with exultation. And if you and I are faithful to suffer and be persecuted for righteousness sake, 
bearing the marks of Christ, when He appears, we will greatly, greatly rejoice. Our eternal reward will bring us great joy. And we will see that the suffering of this time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us in that day. And the verse just before that says, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So that's the future motivation. There will be great glory and great reward someday. But there's also a present motivation for why we should suffer with Christ. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you're mistreated, insulted, treated unfairly or unjustly, rejoice if it's for the name of Christ being a representative and an ambassador for Him. Rejoice because you bear the brunt in His name. His name that sums up all that He is. That's why in Acts 5 they said they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For the name of Jesus Christ. The one who every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Peter in Acts 4.12, For there is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that, just, is that a feeling? No. It means that you are benefited when you suffer for the name of Christ because the Spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. In the hour of your greatest trial, there is great consolation. There is great support from heaven. You may think that you will not be able to bear it, but you will bear it because the Spirit of God will come to you and will rest upon you. What does the word rest mean? It's a refreshing of your soul by the Spirit of God becoming your strength in the midst of suffering. When you are weak, then He can make you strong. The greatest picture of this I know in Scripture is the story about Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. In Acts chapter 6, it said he was full of grace and power. And he was preaching and performing great signs and wonders. And the Spirit of God was upon him. He was accused of blasphemy. They drug him away and falsely witnessed against him. And in verse 15 of chapter 6, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. It was a face that showed peace, serenity, and absolutely unaffected by all the hostility that was coming his way because his faith was in the Lord, and that was who he was doing it for. And after he had spoken to them, they were so infuriated with him that they literally began to grind their teeth, the Bible says. But in chapter 7, verse 55, it says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He's being stoned at this point. Rocks are hitting him, about to put him to death. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The Spirit of glory came upon him, took over, and Stephen saw beyond the hostility to the glory of God. 
he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. So while being stoned to death, what did he do? He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he also said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sounds familiar. Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So expect suffering. Rejoice in it. Number three, examine yourself. Take a look at your suffering and ask, why am I suffering? Verse 15 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Well, murder, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> that's not a Christian thing to do. So we should suffer, but that's not in Christ's name. As a thief, pretty obvious. As an evildoer, that's pretty obvious. Evildoer is a word that just basically sums up all the other crimes that are not mentioned under uh, being a murderer and a thief. But then it goes to number four as a meddler, or your version may say a troublesome meddler. This is someone who intrudes into things that really don't belong to them. They belong to someone else. It's uh, kind of a you need to mind your own business kind of a thing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, But we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live, a, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs <laughs> and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Don't be a troublemaker. Back off. Be quiet. Do your work. And Paul warns young women not to be idlers, going about from house to house and not only being idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they shouldn't say. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Well, this also implies being a revolutionary in society involved in disruptive activities, whether that be with the government or whether it's in your workplace trying to force some situation that's not going to be that way. Maybe trying to make people live by your Christian standards when they are not Christians. Uh, and that may lead you to being persecuted, but it's not being persecuted for Christ's sake. So as a Christian living in a non-Christian society, do your work, live a quiet life, exalt Jesus Christ, preach the gospel, but don't try to overturn the culture or the government. If you do, it's a disgrace and it dishonors the Lord. And you're not suffering for righteousness sake. And you should be ashamed. And I should be ashamed if I ever do that. But if you're living a virtuous and godly life, working quietly with your hands and being faithful to do your task, being a noble citizen and not a disruptor, and you are persecuted for that life, then it is for righteousness sake and there's no need for you to be ashamed. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So examine yourself to see why you're suffering. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In the name as a Christian, in that name glorify God. So how do we prepare for suffering and for persecution? There's one more way. Number four. That's to entrust yourself to God. 
If you look in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? <clears throat> Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you and I suffer as a Christian, you should be joyful and praise God for the privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings. <clears throat> because the spirit of glory rests upon you and you are adding to the weight of your eternal reward. Your suffering is a reminder that the end is near. It's time to clean up the household of God. Verse 7 of 1 Peter 4 says, The end of all things is at hand, so it is time for judgment. We are in the last days, which began when Christ came to this earth. Our judgment began at the cross when our sins were judged in Christ. His judgment will end one day at the great white throne judgment. God's judgment, which begins at the household of God, is not speaking of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's speaking of Christians being chastened, tested, purified, and purged to become more like Jesus Christ. And God begins with the church, but he ends with the final condemnation of the ungodly. If God has a judgment for those who believe, then what will the judgment be for those who do not believe? The church is always in the process of purging and purification in order to be effective in evangelizing the world. But what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And the answer is eternal hell. One more passage I want to show you. This is over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified with his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So rejoice that we can suffer now for Christ sharing in his suffering and having a great reward in eternity one day. But for those who don't believe, it will be eternal destruction. Again, verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is Peter quoting from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31, that says, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? So examine yourself. Are you suffering for righteousness' sake? Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. We suffer according to the will of God. His intended purpose for His children 
again to purge and purify and chasten and to make us effective for Him. Entrust your soul to your faithful Creator who made you for the purpose of living for Him. Simply giving back to God what He has created for His glory. And He created you for His glory. Give yourself back to Him. The word entrust in this passage is the exact same word that Jesus used on the cross when He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And may we, as believers in Christ and members of CCBC, give back to God what He has given to us. In His suffering, He gave Himself to His Father. In our suffering, may we do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank You that You have called us to be Your own, that You have given us life eternal, that You have brought us from death to life Father, we have been given so much. May we understand what it means to give back to You, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to You, to honor You and to glorify You. May we not be fearful and afraid and cowardly and try to hide our faith in order to avoid suffering, but may we take it as an honor to be counted worthy to suffer for Your name. Father, we love you, we praise you, we pray for the strength of this church and for all believers across this nation and this world, that as this world becomes darker and as it becomes more corrupt, when we have entered a time when uh, what is good is spoken of as evil and what is evil is spoken of as good in those days in which we are living, Father, we pray that we would honor you and glorify you and that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us strength to persevere and to honor you by the way we live. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.